Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. Earlier this week, Giorgio Meloni's Fratelli d'Italia, or Brothers of Italy, emerged from the Italian general elections as the largest party with around 26% of the vote. Although it's been a junior partner in previous coalition governments in Italy, this is the first time that Fratelli d'Italia, which traces its lineage back to Mussolini and the post-war fascism of the Italian social movement, or MSI, has become the largest political force in the country. Surging to prominence in recent years, Fratelli d'Italia has waged a fierce culture war against the left, its polarised political debate around World War II, and sought to redeem historical fascism, legitimise its political heirs, and ultimately shift the terrain of mainstream politics to the right. Now poised to take power, many in the international community are asking how this has happened. Well, I'm joined today by David Broder, author of Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, to analyse the situation. David's book is being published by Pluto in March 2023. You can pre-order it today on plutobooks.com. And of course, podcast listeners can get 50% off. You just have to use the coupon podcast at the checkout. So we hope you find today's episode engaging and informative, albeit a little alarming. So uh, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, without any further ado, this is David Broder on Radicals in Conversation. Well, firstly, yeah, David, thank you very much for taking the time to join me uh, today. It's really great to have this conversation. So let's start with something yeah, pretty basic. So this week, the Italian general election occurred and Giorgio Meloni's Fratelli d'Italia, or Brothers of Italy, won the most votes, I think 26% of the vote share. So for people like me, uh, our listeners who are maybe based in other countries, not that familiar with Italian politics, could you give us a quick overview of... I suppose how the Italian political system works, you know, um, and who some of the major parties and political players are in that landscape. Mm-hmm. Broadly, uh, since the 1990s, uh, Italian politics has been based on two main coalitions, the so-called centre-left, uh, which has always pivoted on what's now called the Democratic Party, which sort of consciously models itself on the US Democrats, uh, and brings together old former communist and uh, Catholic centrist and liberal traditions. Mm-hmm. And then the so-called centre-right coalition, which Silvio Berlusconi, the, the billionaire often compared to Donald Trump and so on, created in 1994. He called it the centre-right, but it was a coalition built on Forza Italia, a party he created around himself and his business empire, uh, the Lega which originally was a uh, sort of northern regionalist party, which represented the sort of will to gain more autonomy for the wealthier northern regions. And then the post-fascist party uh, rooted in the old uh, MSI, which through many splits and mergers is today basically Fratelli d'Italia. Other than these coalitions, there's also another force which arose kind of uh, at the end of the 2000s called the Five Star Movement, uh, which is very eclectic uh, and originally claimed to be neither left nor right, but just against the parties, against establishments of all kinds. Today, what we see is that the centre, I mean, one of the themes I talk about a lot in my writing is that this coalition, which is widely called the centre-right, has over time become increasingly dominated by uh, the more radical forces within it and indeed the ones 
which have the most direct uh, genealogy with fascism. Mm. And that's what we see in this election because the right-wing bloc in total got 44% of the vote and within that the biggest party was Fratelli d'Italia, Giorgio Meloni's party. Whereas the various forces kind of outside of and opposed to that, uh, Five Star and the Democrats and small kind of centrist forces, although they, uh, if you add them all up, they got more or less the same uh, uh, percentage, they were more heterogeneous and were punished by uh, the electoral law, which rewards coalitions. Uh, so the right-wing parties, despite getting uh, 44% of the vote, will get a large majority of seats. And it adds to this impression of a sort of huge upsurge of support for Fratelli d'Italia. Uh, it increased its own share a lot on last time, uh, but the actual overall right-wing vote is quite similar to what it was in the 1990s and 2000s. So in that sense, it's more of a, a shift to the right within the right-wing bloc than a, a sort of sudden upsurge in, in support for the right-wing coalition in general. Mm, mm, yeah, interesting. I mean, I was going to ask, so, you know, how it was that Fratelli d'Italia and, and the right wing bloc, I guess, as you've described it, has done so well, uh, and the left has fared so poorly. I mean, you've kind of answered the question. So it is it is a combination of maybe failing to mobilise their own base or like just inspire popular support, but also maybe not being effective at forming these kinds of alliances or coalitions. Yeah, so Five Star represented a quite explosive phenomenon in the in the party system during its sort of rise in the 2010s, because at first it said, you know, no coalitions, no deals with parties, often even stuff like refusing to appear on TV and is insisting on only speaking through its own media outlets, a certain kind right. of conspiracy theorist edge, very strange party with a kind of control freakish uh, leadership. You know, when it then won, or at least came first place in the 2018 election, then it began a very strange process by which it was sort of melded into Italy's national institutions and it formed a series of opposite coalitions. So mm. the Five Star had a government first with the anti-immigrant Lager, Matteo Salvini, then with the Democrats, and then was part of this national unity government, so-called uh, led by Mario Draghi, the former European Central Bank chief. And that government included five-star Democrats, Berlusconi's party and the Lega, uh, and the only party to remain outside was Fratelli d'Italia. Mm. So within the right-wing bloc, Fratelli d'Italia gained from the fact that it was like the only opposition that allowed it to both like monopolize and sort of rallying frustration with, with Draghi's government, but in mm. particular sort of like not really criticizing Draghi himself so much, but rather like damning the, the so-called left in power, claiming that the government was representative of the left's anti-democratic impulses and so on. I mean, between Five Star and, and the Democrats, you know, there have been times when they, they have made uh, coalitions and even uh, run together uh, as a joint front in some uh, regional elections. But those parties have quite opposite social profiles and even uh, some quite distinct uh, ideological assumptions. Democrats are very much, by this point, a party of uh, wealthier Italians, uh, a party which, despite like quite strong roots in the left, is basically really a, a kind of liberal Europeanist, more than social democratic party. I mean, even compared to, say, parties like 
the Labour Party in Britain mm. or German Social Democrats has like less connection to the sort of old structures of, of the Labour movement. Whereas Five Star actually this time did run a campaign quite heavily focused on things like unemployment benefits, minimum wage. Yeah. Uh, so paradoxically actually ran a, a more distinctly kind of social uh, campaign and actually, although it it both collapsed, but also did better than expected because it managed to rally a certain amount of its uh, support in the South, in regions particularly where there's more reliance on uh, income support. So, so in the end, the opposite social profiles of those parties became even more pronounced. Right, yeah. So... Everyone's talking about Giorgia Maloney. She's set to become, I suppose, the I think I'm right in saying the first female prime minister of Italy. Um, but yeah, who is she? And what's her political career, her trajectory been to get her to where she is now leading Fratelli d'Italia? Well, Giorgia Maloney is someone who joined the Italian social movement, the kind of historic neo-fascist party mm. in 1992, aged 15 Often we hear this talk like, well, she's from a sort of working class background in this suburb called uh, Garbatella in Rome. Uh, she was involved in the MSI youth wing very quickly, sort of rose up through the ranks of that. She became a Rome city councillor, then she took over the uh, youth wing of the uh, post-fascist party in 2004. Uh, when she was 29, she became uh, sort of deputy uh, speaker in the parliament and then a youth minister uh, in 2008 under a Berlusconi government. Mm. Even like 10 years ago, she was being talked up as someone who could maybe be the leader of like a, a sort of joint right-wing party, including both Berlusconi's forces and the post-fascists. But I, I think like the important thing is to think about like the moment in which she became politically active, as I said, mm. like 1992, you know, she was still very young then. But also, you know, that was like the end of the Cold War, a time when uh, the old Communist Party had dissolved itself mm. and started its transition to be a more kind of liberal force, a time when the old parties of the Italian Republic, Christian Democrats and Socialists, were collapsing amidst the corruption scandal, which is today known as a Bribesville uh, mm -hmm. and, the, and the so-called Clean Hands trials. So, you know, that was a, a moment when the, the kind of architecture of the old Italy, the parties of the Cold War era was uh, falling apart. And also that, you know, those were parties that had led the resistance during World War Two, and which uh, had structured the sort of anti-fascist republic since then. The MSI had always been a, a kind of quite marginal force. Uh, it had attempted to become a junior partner of government, uh, particularly in uh, 1960. But that had faced a great backlash and uh, it had been basically pushed to the margins. Also, if we think like, you know, the, the MSI, the neo-fascist party, you know, almost all its main leaders, even into the 1980s, were people who had directly experienced the Nazi collaboration. And when I say experienced, I mean, who had taken part in the Nazi collaborationist Salah Republic uh, of 1943 to 5. So the last holdout Mussolini regime, which fought against both the Anglo-Americans and the partisans to the last. But then at the time Maloney joined in 1992, there were still very many cadres from that period, people who were proud of their role in fighting against the resistance and so on. Uh, but there was also a certain kind of generational 
handover in the party. And, and so the political experiences of people who sort of grew up politically in the 1990s and 2000s are not at all like limited to sort of reference to the regime era. Uh, and in fact, I think you could say that the, the, the political reference points of Fratelli d'Italia are much more rooted in post-war neo-fascism itself rather than the regime. So often in when we look at, say, Milani's uh, memoir as a case in point, uh, published in 2021, there's a lot of this language of like the tradition of the right, the 70-year tradition, the people who never ceased to believe and struggle, mm. uh, this kind of celebration of the neo-fascist minority in the Republic who resist what they would see as a sort of overbearing anti-fascist domination. And so in her political culture and in the makeup of the party, uh, which is dominated by former members of the MSI, there's this very strong sense of, sort of victimhood and redemption. You know, they've mm -hmm. overcome the barriers against them. You know, when they entered uh, Berlusconi's governments in the 1990s and 2000s, they finally were allowed to uh, raise their heads. And so even now in uh, Meloni's rhetoric, uh, we see a lot of the same thing, uh, the sense that anti-fascism has always been allowed to attack the right, mm. uh, whereas like anti-communism has never had a, a sort of fair say. And so the party is trying to change that balance so the republic should be based on anti anti-communism and a sort of broader anti-progressive politics she promotes uh, rather than the, the sort of legacy of the, of the war and resistance. Mm. Well, we'll definitely come on to some of that uh, in terms of the rhetoric and what they're actually about. But I mean, I, I'd written down two questions here, which I realise are actually basically the same question, but I'm going to ask them both in quick succession. So how would you describe the politics of Fratelli d'Italia? We've kind of gone a bit there already. And how does it describe itself? And if there's a distinction, why is that the case? And then I suppose the second question, which is perhaps the same question expressed differently, is how easy does Fratelli d'Italia sit with the label of fascist? Because this is maybe my own naivety, but I would have assumed that openly claiming that label would have been politically toxic, even if you know, adopting essentially fascist policies by another name might not be. So is there any equivocation here with the label fascist? How do they navigate that sort of rhetorical terrain? Mm -hmm. Well, Fratelli d'Italia is best described as a post-fascist party in the sense that while it calls itself conservative, while it has uh, broadly you know, committed itself to reformist means of political action through you know, electoral and constitutional channels, fascism is still part of its political culture, part of its makeup, part of the, the sets of ideas that in, inform what it wants to do. Fratelli d'Italia often insists that it's a conservative party, but we also see, firstly, that its personnel are almost entirely inherited from the tradition of neo-fascism from the MSI, and also that they continue to refer to even some regime-era theorists and reference points and some of the language, you know, the idea of a sort of homogenous national community uh, and its redemption, uh, relitigating uh, certain battles of the outcome of World War II, in particular a very pronounced tendency to portray uh, fascists as the victims as well as perpetrators of atrocities but also uh, a certain importing of other 
uh, even non-Italian fascist ideas and conspiracy theories uh, faced around the idea of a, the defense of a, of a national community under attack from Marxists in alliance with speculators, George Soros, and so on. So a case in point would be its use of great replacement theory. The idea of a planned ethnic substitution willed by globalists and so on. This kind of uh, conspiracy theorist register. Also, I think we can say that within the so-called centre-right electoral alliance, even when Berlusconi was the dominant leader, uh, that did include some forces who were just very explicitly uh, fascist. So groups, for example, like um, Roberto Fiore's uh, Forza Nuova, a party in the 2000s led by Alessandro Mussolini called Azione Sociale, and various splinters, which are actually more explicitly fascist even than the MSI Alianza Nazionale tradition, such as a Fiamma Tricolore, led by a Pino Rauti, who was like a, one of the historic leaders of the MSI, but split away in the 1990s. The other part of this is that what you allude to in terms of how does it deal with the rhetorical question of like, you know, how does it relate to being called fascist? Mm. I think one thing we really see is that the party is generally very, its leaders are both quite prickly and sort of bristle against the idea that the left should be allowed to like judge whether they're legitimate. But often these kind of responses when they claim you know, well, how dare you call us fascists, actually show the way in which fascism does remain part of the party's culture uh, in the sense that they don't actually reject the fascist experience per se, but rather divide it into relatively more or less positive periods and moments. Uh, so a very typical uh, rhetorical strategy we see in this sense, and we had it when uh, Giorgio Milani during this campaign sort of issued a, a statement to international journalists, which was widely portrayed as, well, she's distancing herself from fascism. But what was interesting about it was precisely that she didn't say, we're anti-fascists, that we like condemn fascism, and indeed, nor has the party any kind of like uh, sort of critical overall perspective on fascism. Uh, what she did instead was to repeat uh, a line already advanced in the 1990s by leader Gianfranco Fini, which basically said fascism should be condemned for its racial laws. And she specifically said, and he only said, the anti-Semitism mm. of the regime in the 1938 racial laws and for its role in the Holocaust. And this also fits into a certain indulgent story of fascism in which basically Mussolini did good things too, up to a certain point, the historical judgment should be positive. But then in this framing, basically, it's like Mussolini went astray with the alliance with Hitler, mm. which led Italy and fascism into a, you know, a disastrous end. So they're not interested in defending the record of the regime. You know, that's not useful. And as they insist, you know, that's a very long time ago. They're not responsible for it. It was a time of political violence and so on that no longer exists. At the same time, they very strongly do um, identify themselves with the tradition of post-war neo-fascism. Mm -hmm. And the contradiction there, of course, is that a lot of the people, including the sort of long-time uh, neo-fascist leader, Giorgio Almirante, the leader of the MSI 
both in the late 1940s and again from 1969 till uh, 1987. He himself described himself as a fascist right to the end and in many ways defended the regime of which he himself had been part. Uh, so the problem is basically they try and establish an arbitrary separation between a judgment on the regime itself and then on the post-war neo-fascist movement, even though the neo-fascist movement was dominated by veterans of the slow republic of Nazi collaboration. Uh, another element of this, of course, is to separate uh, Italian fascism from Nazi Germany. Uh, that said, at the same time, you know, I think we can say that there are also other groups who are outside of Fratelli d'Italia who are more explicitly continuators of the fascist tradition who uphold it rather than just being bound to it. And there's also a certain interplay between this kind of more explicitly fascist and indeed extra-parliamentary parts of the movement and then a party like Fratelli d'Italia. So if we think of groups like Casa Pound, uh, Forza Nuova, Lealta Azione, these groups are, are separate from Fratelli d'Italia and have different ideas and reference points and ways of organising, uh, but there's also a certain sort of recycling of ideas and personnel and so on uh, between them. Mm. So what really characterises the last 30 years of Italian politics is this breakdown of any kind of what's in Italy is called an anti-fascist prejudice within the right-wing camp. There's there's no kind of cordon sanitaire or limit. And actually, even in entirely uh, mainstream TV discussion shows and so on, it's common to have people who are like openly fascist and who proudly call themselves fascists. And also a certain kind of like very rapid rehabilitation of people who mix in between saying they're fascists or acting outraged when they're accused of it. So mm -hmm. I, I think broadly, though, it's that the idea that someone can be both a fascist and operate within democratic politics is itself quite normal. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you touched on this kind of strange sort of cognitive separation of fascism in government in the regime and some of its policies like the racial policies and, and you know you mentioned anti-semitism there um because i think it's also true and you've pointed this out in various articles that there is if not an explicit then certainly an implied anti-semitism that seems to run through a lot of meloni's rhetoric could you explore a little bit of that yeah so i i think one of the things is that since the old party the msi first entered Berlusconi's government in, in 1994, it operated a, a sort of big performance of turning to the future, going beyond the MSI tradition. There was a party called Alianza Nazionale in the 1990s and 2000s, which was basically claimed to take the neo-fascist tradition and merge it together with other reference points, other ideas, other traditions. Mm. So ones drawn from the liberal right, the conservative right, and so on. But for a lot of militants, this clearly was seen as a sort of marketing operation or like an electoral tactic rather than like a profound process of change of the culture and ideological framework of the party. And actually, I think what we see with Meloni now, again, is, is something quite similar uh, in the sense that the word conservative is used to frame the party, but the content put within that includes a lot of fascist ideas. Um, and I think this is usefully called a, a sort of constitutional fascism, uh, as the historian uh, Roger Griffin 
puts it, which has an inherent tension between the fact that it draws on fascist ideas, fascist worldview, but then puts that together with contradictory ideas, in particular at the level of like day-to-day political rhetoric. So one of the good examples of this is precisely the fact that the party proclaims itself to be not racist, but then combines that with statements which like blatantly are, and again with with the specific uh, case of anti-Semitism. So the party would you know, combine the fact of being like you know outwardly proclaiming its condemnation of Mussolini's anti-Semitism, and then for example supporting Israel, with then saying that international speculators like George Soros are working in league with the left in order to uproot our civilization destroy the binds of nation, territory, the natural family, to create a a formless mass, uh, the international republic of money, uh, in which individuals are like the playthings, or indeed slaves, of George Soros. What I just said is like word for word what they said. So that kind of statement, even to call that a kind of anti-Semitic dog whistle, would be to, <laughs> to to play down how how much it's kind of obviously rooted in a classically anti-Semitic conception of national community mm. and the outsiders, the minorities, who are the secret lobbies and so on, who like undermine and uh, and destroy it. Um, but it's in a certain way, it's kind of accompanied by a language of you know, of course we're not racist, of course we're not anti-Semitic, and and so on find it kind of uh, laughable that a lot of mainstream outlets who tell this story of Milani, who's gone moderate and who's not so bad and so on, basically refuse to recognise that this is indeed anti-Semitism. And of course, you know, it may be true at a certain level that her, her government will not shake Italy's international position or whatever, but that's a very different question from, you know, is the political culture of the party anti-Semitic? And I think the, the answer is uh, clearly yes. Another way, important way in which the party is anti-Semitic is its massive relativization of the Holocaust. In far-right and neo-fascist politics since World War II, a very common idea has been that, and rallying point, has been the claim that you know some of your uh, listeners might have seen people like sharing stuff on Twitter, which is that Giorgio Milani really has it in for Tito and the Yugoslav partisans. Mm. And the reason for this is that the party claims that the Yugoslav partisans on the Italian-Yugoslav border at the end of World War II committed an ethnic cleansing of Italians and that this is like a crime like tantamount to the Holocaust, but which is suppressed by anti-fascist historians. Mm. Several regions run by Fratelli d'Italia, but also the Lega, have introduced legislation which criminalizes a denial of these killings by Yugoslav partisans right. uh, in a way that directly equates it with the Holocaust. Also in the right-wing governments of the, uh, of the 2000s under Berlusconi, they introduced alongside Holocaust Memorial Day, two weeks later, a day of commemoration for the Italians killed by Yugoslav partisans, 
this was a day of memory, which was actually already celebrated under the Nazi collaborationist Solo Republic in 1944, and is again celebrated in Italy since 2005. The two things, the Holocaust and the victims of Yugoslav partisans, are often put in very direct comparison and equation, the idea being like basically the anti-fascists, they have their victims, but mm. Italians too were the victims of ethnic cleansing. And Fratelli d'Italia uh, proposes to change the existing constitutional ban on Holocaust denial to also include uh, denial or minimization of the crimes of Yugoslav partisans. Mm. Of course, it's true that some hundreds or even thousands of Italians were killed by Yugoslav partisans even after the armistice in September 1943. But I think, firstly, a no serious historian credits the idea that this was an uh, ethnic cleansing. Fascists, police officials, landowners, and so on, featured very heavily among the victims. Uh, mm. Of course, there were many cases of individuals who were unjustly killed, even of, of sexual violence and so on. Uh, but the, the problem lies precisely in the trivialization of the Holocaust and of fascism's own crimes by providing this kind of gotcha response of, yes, but communists did ethnic cleansing of Italians too. On the day of memory for this in 2019, uh, Matteo Salvini, who's the leader of the Lega, said in two separate interventions that, uh, so he referred to the like, Italian Football League, he said there's no Serie A victims and Serie B victims you know there's no like premier league and then you know championship or league one or whatever you know the the children who died at auschwitz and the children who were killed by yugoslav partisans you know they have the same moral weight uh, but of course the number of children killed at auschwitz was about four hundred thousand, and the number of italian children killed by yugoslav partisans was two mm. yet uh, italian Public media and even the national broadcaster uh, Rai, with some of the fictional content it's produced, they echo this kind of Holocaustization of the history of the Yugoslav partisans who um, ethnically cleansed uh, Italians. Um, so I think there's a kind of massive historical relativism pushed by the uh, this party, which in a separate way from the you know, conspiracy theories and so on, but which in, in its own way has a uh, strong anti-Semitic uh, flavour. Mm. So I suppose then a follow-on question, if you said they were going to legislate on this kind of issue, I suppose I would ask, um, yeah, what kind of a, a platform has Fratelli d'Italia run on? Like, what did it go into the election promising to do, where it's to form the next government? And I suppose we could break this down into, you know, what kinds of domestic, economic uh, and foreign policy positions it's likely to try and uh, implement or adopt. Well, the election campaign itself was a little strange in the sense that because the right wing parties were running in coalition and the opposition to them was not, and because the electoral system rewards coalitions, mm. It was like ubiquitous. You know, everyone expected that the right wing led by Milani would certainly win. During the cross-party government led by Mario Draghi, which was created in February 2021, hers was the only major party not to join. She'd already enjoyed some like polling rise, particularly taking voters off Matteo Salvini's Lega. Mm. And that trend accelerated during this government. And already from summer of 2021, they've had a more or less either first place or more or less equal first place in opinion polls. So... Uh, there was no doubt that Maloney would win. 
So most of the campaign was quite strange in the sense that it largely amounted to various opposition forces and indeed international media and institutions suggesting that she was in various ways dangerous or illegitimate uh, and her defending herself from these attacks by saying uh, that the left is undemocratic and intolerant, that she's the victim, that Italians should be allowed to have their say and, and so on. So the actual policy content of her campaign in many ways was quite uh, light uh, and very heavily focused on the insistence that uh, she would maintain Italy's like international position and you know wouldn't like you know leave the EU or euro or yeah. or indeed uh, stop arms supplies and to Ukraine sanctions against Russia um and also that she you know, make some sort of changes to Mario Draghi's post-pandemic recovery agenda, but being very vague as to what that is. Mm. However, her, her rallies and so on, they're not really about, you know, sort of like a policy program, but very much kind of like the left attack us because they have nothing to say. We're the victims. You're being silenced. They're planning to, you know, import people to Islamize Europe destroying the natural family, this kind of stuff, and this is like your chance to have your say. Yeah, so it's not really like an agenda of policy mm. as much as like mobilising a sort of very harsh like identity politics uh, against various enemies and groups, minorities, and so on. The specific use of the f idea of ethnic substitution mm. uh, was less used during this campaign, but then it also appeared in other forms. So, for example, the idea of like Soros orchestrating mass immigration uh, in order to drive down labor costs and that kind of thing still was there. Yeah. One of the main policy uh, issues, though, that defines the right-wing coalition is that the idea of introducing a, a so-called flat tax. So, as against like you know progressive income tax, where you know the more you earn, the more you pay. The idea is to introduce like a flat income tax, the same across the whole scale. Uh, which would also be overall much lower. So the proposals for this range between a 15% flat tax, as promoted by the Lega, 23 as promoted by Berlusconi, and Fratelli d'Italia was kind of quite vague on where it stood in between. Hmm. So you know, already in that, you kind of see a bit of the, the way in which the policy proposal is actually very vague because yeah. the tax rate could be slashed by like half or like two-thirds but without uh, specifying which. But then um, we've also had various kind of like ideas which came up during the campaign, which gave something of a kind of flavour of the kind of things they'd like to do. So one was that, uh, for example, Milani suggested that uh, businesses set up by non-European citizens should have to pay an advance kind of deposit or fee or surety or something to show that they're not going to evade taxation. And the idea is like, well, uh, businesses run by ordinary Italians face un unfair competition from non-Europeans because immigrants are coming and not paying taxes. Another big issue in the campaign was that there was a criminal case of a man from Guinea who raped a Ukrainian woman, and this was like filmed on security camera, and Meloni uh, shared on her social media the footage, which had been published by a newspaper, and then various social media kind of took down her post, and then there was a lot of like argument over like, well, the opposition parties kind of condemned her for 
for sharing the footage, also because the victim herself said that the circulation of it had meant she was like recognized and it added to her like trauma, the fact yeah. that Maloney had shared the footage. And then Maloney kind of struck back saying like, well, the left would rather talk about me than talk about like the real issue, which is like immigrants committing sexual violence. It's often easy to kind of imagine that it's like, oh, like she like embarrassed herself with her outlandish behavior or something like that. But actually like she deliberately kept the controversy going and like mentioned it at several points, even after the initial media discussion of it had uh, arisen. So I I think like, it's not so much like her saying what she's going to do as kind of creating a constant like narrative of conflict and victimization, which is designed to, to sort of rally her base, to rally the right wing electorate uh, behind her. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. So I suppose your new book, which is Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, um, and that's coming out in March 2023, I think I'm right in saying. So this is going to be an impossible question to answer, but given that it's coming out in March, uh, that's what, six months away, what do you think we'll likely be saying about how Fratelli d'Italia's government has fared over those months? Another way of thinking about it is what are the obstacles or issues that are likely to face them in power? Well, one of the issues that has come up in, in advance of the election is, is that Fratelli d'Italia has some leaders who have been in government before, but not in senior roles. Melani was youth minister in Berlusconi's uh, most recent government and in uh, 2008 to 11, and Ignazio La Russa, who's one of the main leaders of the party, he was defence minister. But really they don't have a lot of like institutional figures in the party. They have very few who are from outside the neo-fascist tradition. Uh, so there's a certain attempt for them to like gather around themselves various like former figures of Berlusconi's party, even some like ex like Christian Democrats and so on. So people from outside their own political tradition. And then this kind of serves, although kind of people they're talking about actually have quite dubious record, but like, yeah, it kind of serves this effort to to give an image of like what they call a kind of, I guess the translation would be something like a kind of government of all the talents. You know, saying, like, we're not just drawing on our own personnel, but we're going to bring in, like, former magistrates and, like, a former economy minister and so on. Uh, today, there's also a, a, a sort of story, which is this idea of kind of, like, Mario Draghi is going to kind of hold their hand, that he'll agree to help and advise the government as long as it commits to Italy's international position, as long as it's, like, fiscally prudent, this kind of thing. And I actually think that Melani her political culture is very much to go along with that because really they accept that Italy isn't going to be able to break out of its place in international institutions or the euro. Uh, You know, they've like definitively shelved that for quite uh, some time. And the Milani government is very likely to be like quite conformist in, in that sense in its like foreign policy and probably even not pursue some sort of like, you know, grand reorganization of the economy, but be quite mediocre in those regards and then do its kind of day-to-day narrative of itself, its day-to-day choice of policies and so on, uh, quite focused on kind of stoking battles with the left over yeah. identity, over migration. In fact, one of the policies I neglected to mention, which he did promise, was a naval blockade in the Mediterranean right. to stop rescue boats. 
and another kind of issue that is one which might uh, come up is that some um, local councils under the leadership of the right-wing parties, and including uh, but not, not only Fratelli d'Italia, have pursued policies which do things like limit the number of non-Italian children in classrooms or which uh, deny school meals to non-citizens, this kind of thing. So I think in, in that way they can they can pursue like a very harshly racist <laughs> policy being a way that you know, doesn't actually like kind of destabilize the overall Italian economy or its like place in Europe or anything like that. Mm. However, I think the big obstacle is that the issue of energy prices and connected to that, of course, the war in Ukraine yeah. uh, is going to make it more difficult for them to pursue the agenda that they they proclaim when they basically say you know we're just conservatives we're not planning to rock the boat we want to continue with draghi's policy and so on so one of the aspects of fratelli d'italia is that it's very easy to imagine that because far-right parties are gaining support whereas like what passes for the the center left is declining that it's because like they're mobilizing like welfare chauvinism that they're like saying they're going to defend the unemployed or and this kind of thing whereas actually they're very stridently not welfareist and they proclaim that they want to get rid of one of the things that the five star did do in power which was to introduce unemployment benefits hmm. uh d'italia is very strongly against the idea of like handouts there's a lazy young people sat on the sofa, you know, this kind of rhetoric uh, yeah. appears a lot. Uh, and indeed what they propose to do instead is to give employers tax cuts if they hire more employees. So I, I think the recipes they, they promote in terms of boosting employment, in terms of reviving Italian industry, including manufacturing industry, which basically centre on deregulation, including environmental deregulation, but also offering like tax exemptions for companies that hire staff. I think that kind of approach to the economy is going to fare extremely poorly in the period of the upcoming energy bills crisis and recession, and that the government will probably actually be forced to be more uh, interventionist in, in this sense in terms of supporting incomes uh, than it currently plans or even wants to be. There was a very interesting article by Simone Gasperin, which appeared uh, in English, but on the, on the website of El País, on this idea, which is, which is yeah, I mean, like, no matter how bland its intention is, even if it plans to rule kind of as conservatives, and certainly not, of course, to, like, you know, create an interventionist or kind of statist economic model, mm. it will probably be forced under the pressure of the crisis to do something a bit more like that anyway. There's also problems, though, like in terms of the internal composition of the government. Firstly, because Fratelli d'Italia's own voters are broadly hostile to the continued sanctions against Russia. Uh, so despite Meloni's like very repeated pronouncements of her loyalty to the you know supporting Ukraine and, and so on, I think that there's a chance that the Lega, the second biggest party in the coalition, but now much reduced, will seek to like play on that issue in order to like undermine her role and to, to reassert its own leadership within the, the right-wing coalition on the basis that you know Italian small businesses, Italian households kind of can't afford the costs of the crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some talk of a kind of European cap on energy prices. 
and you know Milani's even talked about like restarting like uh, basically like fracking off the coast of Italy all very familiar sounding <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so i think so i think you know this crisis is is obviously in reality going to shape a lot of what the government does but then it's hard to say at this point how it will play out my broad conclusion though would be that precisely insofar as it runs into difficulty on this kind of terrain it will be more tempted to refocus the political battle over its own preferred kind of identitarian talking points in order to try and hang on to a base which it's only won uh, very recently. I mean, even slightly earlier in the rise of Fratelli d'Italia in the polls, we knew that half of its voters were were recent switchers from the Lega. Maybe even some of those people had voted for post- or neo-fascist parties before. But yeah, I mean, this election result is very much like a swing of support within the right-wing bloc. So uh, holding on to that for Milani might be quite difficult, precisely because you know a lot of the energy behind it is based on the idea that she's an outsider because she's been in opposition for ten years. Mm. Yeah, so let's just briefly talk a little bit about the book Mussolini's Grandchildren: Fascism in Contemporary Italy. As I say, it's coming out in March. People can go to plutobooks.com and pre-order it now. So. This has obviously been a project that has coincided with this moment in Italian politics, but you clearly began this project a long time ago because that's how books work. So what was it that led you to want to produce this book in the first place? Well, I think in in recent years, the idea of fascism has strongly re-entered public debate, also with reference to a lot of quite diverse phenomena. So if we think of, of course, Donald Trump in the United States, Marine Le Pen in France, Mm. even Matteo Salvini's Lega in Italy, as well as, you know, Jair Bolsonaro. You know, we can think of lots of examples of these, like, nativist parties, which appear to, like, in some way overwhelm or replace a previous conservative or centre-right force with something that's more identitarian, polarising, which rejects kind of previous speech codes and so on. But then a lot of the pushback against the idea that these are fascist phenomena is based on the reply that these forms are something kind of uh, that don't really conform to some of the key fundaments of like historical fascism, in particular political violence, their explicitly anti-democratic character, the fact that they arose in a context of both rising mass democracy and uh, revolutionary threat from the left. So all of these things mean that the idea that these are are fascist may therefore seem kind of out of place or out of time. Mm. I think the Italian example is interesting precisely because it, it helps kind of overcome the problem in a way in the sense that the party itself has organizational continuity from the historical you know, regime era fascist yeah. period. You know, I say Mussolini's grandchildren. So, of course, you know, the people today are not clones of the people who were around in 1945. They have different life experiences. They have a different way of doing politics. But that's precisely the point. It's that this is the fascist tradition integrated into a more postmodern politics in a time when the basic kind of contours of like the way that citizens relate to parties, relate to democracy, also the things like the end of kind of class-based politics and the kind of internationalization 
of political cultures have sort of accelerated. So I think precisely the interest in, let's say, studying the genealogy of Fratelli d'Italia and the the post-fascist movement in Italy is precisely to shed light on the fact that the forms change, but many of the ideas either actually remain or else can be kind of updated for our own political times. So, you know, of course it's true that Fratelli d'Italia and indeed the various examples like uh, Trump, you know, they do not, of course, advocate like an exterminationist politics. You know, they're not going to like repeat the crimes of historical fascism and certainly not in the same way, but rather they have uh, identity politics, a sense of homogenous national community and so on, but which also responds to actually a quite different society in which there is uh, more immigration, in which the kind of um, ideas of family, of individual rights, civil liberties and so on have changed. So therefore what we actually see in a party like Fratelli d'Italia is a kind of fusion of its historical ideas and its view of itself with a kind of adaptation to certain sort of broader social trends. Uh, so that's why I think that the Italian case is a good one for studying the international far right, not just because, oh, a hundred years ago uh, Mussolini took power and now, well, they're back, uh, but rather precisely the process of, of change over time. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, so people, as I say, can pre-order the book if they want, and I'm very much looking forward to reading it when it's published. Uh, yeah, so David Broder, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. That was David Broder on Radicals in Conversation. Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy is being published in March 2023. You can pre-order it today through plutobooks.com. You just have to use the coupon podcast at the checkout to get 50% off. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with our next episode of Radicals and Conversation in-house, which features Gracie Mae Bradley and Luke de Noronha discussing their new book, Against Borders. Uh, That should be a really good discussion. And then we'll be back again in October with the next episode of our regular panel show. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.